0: Uh, It's just not in my nature to sit back and do nothing. I've watched that happen for three decades, and it's got the women nowhere. So it's time for change. And if you don't speak out, I I wasn't gonna walk away from my experience there and had regret about not speaking out to affect some change.
1: and welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
2: And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
1: On today's episode we are focusing on two really incredible campaigns from two female police officers, one of whom has now left the force, the other is still working as a police officer, and they have told the police departments in their cities, Waterloo and Windsor, Ontario, specifically, you need to be accountable to your employees and to the public for your mistakes. And the response that they've gotten, which has amounted to hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on legal fees to defeat their claims and also a lot of ostracization in the workplace, this speaks very loudly of the insider culture of the police culture and a lack of transparency in police organizations. Although Kelly Donovan and Christine Bissonette, our guests on this episode, have different complaints, they have a lot in common in their experiences and that's why we're really excited that they agreed to sit down together virtually of course with Julie to do this podcast episode.
2: Yeah, I've I've been aware of, um, well, Christine's story for a really long time, but also Kelly's story uh, in the last number of years. And I was fascinated about the kind of shared energy between these two women. And I thought it would be really neat to have them talk together about the experience of being a whistleblower in a police organization. So beginning with Kelly, she initially saw what she believed to be abuse of power in internal investigations inside the Waterloo police and spoke up about it, contacted a number of different agencies to try to hold Waterloo Police Board accountable, but then found that she was the subject of an investigation herself and eventually felt uh, uncomfortable and distressed in that position that she left the force. And she now has an organization called Fit for Duty, which offers independent police investigators and campaigns for police accountability. Uh, Kelly's story, her legal saga continues. Most recently, she represented herself at the Ontario Court of Appeal where she won. uh, And she has an ongoing um, case against the police board that they have been um, spending an enormous amount of money on fighting. Uh, She just published recently, they are now at over $400,000 they spent on legal fees to, uh, to fight her in court. Kelly won the 2019 Ontario Civil Liberties Association Award in recognition of her work in speaking up about this issue. And she has two books as well that she's written about the experience, which we will carry the details of on the podcast website. And Christine Christine Bessonet, Staff Sergeant Christine Bessonet, she is still a serving officer. She has also been representing herself at the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, which was where Kelly began as well, in a claim for systemic gender discrimination against her employer, the Windsor Police Services Board. Christine um, has spoken about numerous instances of discrimination against her as a p- female police officer including access to positions that she was qualified to hold that would be promotions that she has consistently been able to get. Uh, I actually worked many years ago now with Christine when she was attempting mediation to resolve her complaints, but that wasn't effective for her. And she finally filed a claim at the tribunal in 2010. So yes, these cases take a long time. So we're going to listen to this conversation between Kelly and and Christine about what they share in common and what motivates them to stand up and be whistleblowers. So Kelly and Christine, thank you. First of all, so much for doing this today. We really appreciate it. You both have pretty amazing stories to tell, and we're only going to be able to scratch the surface. But I hope in the next 20 minutes or so, we can really give our listeners a sense of what it is you're doing and why it's important. So you have each of you raised serious issues about how the police at a municipal level, Kelly in Waterloo, Christine in Windsor, investigate internal complaints against police officers and management. And in particular, you have each highlighted questionable practices regarding the investigation of of officers for sexual harassment and gender discrimination. Now, listeners to this podcast will be familiar with the problems that get raised when lawyers investigate themselves at the Law Society. And here we're talking about the police investigating themselves. I appreciate you've each been through a very long slog to get redress and change and there's a lot of detail that we're not going to be able to get into, but I want to begin by asking and Kelly, I'm going to ask you to start if that's okay. In your opinion, what is the single worst and most troubling deficiency in how the police investigate officer misconduct and complaints.
3: Well, for me, it's the fact that the discretion comes down to one single person. So as it stands now, you know, whether or not there's an investigation into alleged criminal activity of a police officer, it all comes down to the chief of police deciding to initiate that investigation. Right. So my issue is that there is no mechanism in place for anyone to question that decision. And most mm-hmm. of the time, these decisions are made behind closed doors, and there's no transparency, so people don't even know what questions to ask. And... Is the outcome of a decision like that made available to complainants or anybody who's been involved in it, Kelly, or is it simply, here's the bottom line? The complaint gets made and the chief takes that complaint, but then that complaint becomes a chief's complaint. So at that point the the complainant isn't even considered a complainant you're not considered a victim you're not considered anything the chief would take that allegation and investigate it but there's no transparency back to the complainant because okay. you don't even give you're not even given that right so there are just so many aspects of it that are done behind closed doors that no one ever knows the outcome
2: right right and this issue of complainants not being involved and not seeing the outcome i mean we also see this inside universities so i mean we're seeing this in a lot of different settings christine let me turn the question to you for a moment um what in your opinion um i know you've seen a lot of different deficiencies in police investigation practices, but what, in your opinion, is is, is like the worst part of that that you've encountered?
0: Uh, well, there's two things, but I agree with Kelly. First of all, the biggest issue is the autonomy of the chief, which is allowed right. by the act um, with towards discipline in the application of the Police Services Act. And again, like she says, the closed door meetings. Uh, The current culture in policing is really based on uh, personal relationships and colonialism. Mm. As a result, what factors into the decision making by the chiefs of police is his decision making and the decision making of the people he's surrounded by. Right, Um, Right. Right. So, his application of accountability is justified by the relationships he has and whether or not he has support by the people surrounding him and these are the decision makers with regards to police service proceeding with criminal allegations. It's not about holding people accountable. It's not about doing the right thing. All that matters with regards to the chief of police and the people surrounding him is um, they're in a position of power. And if that power is threatened in any way, they'll at all costs, circle the wagons. That's where you see the very few females who are at the top and they turn on other females who may be complainants because
2: most often they're in those positions and they're dictated to or directed. Well that takes me to the next question actually Christine which is that you know one of the things that that is is definitely common to your experiences although they're different is that you've each highlighted problems with gender discrimination and, and a general culture inside municipal police um, of a management structure largely composed of white men, although you know this does create problems as a result for both men and women as, as Kelly has pointed out. Do you think that internal culture also affects police culture and practice when they investigate brought complaints brought to the police from the outside, in other words, as a member of the public if I wanted to make a complaint to the police about sexual harassment or or discriminatory behavior, are the kinds of things that you're describing, do you think that they're gonna be a problem in that context as well? Christine, do you wanna go first? Oh, sure. So
0: absolutely, it does have an effect on the the public and and, uh, their applications when they come forward to the police because what you allow within the organization, you encourage, and this is the culture and nature that the officers are exposed to day in and day out internal victims and complainants are gaslighted and and ostracized, and when members of the public come forward and make a complaint, they're also gaslighted and ostracized. I've seen male investigators and female investigators spend countless hours trying to have a victim sign off on a sexual assault allegation. In the effort it took them to have that happen they could have prepared a court file and put it forward to the courts right it's right. just a sad reality so the other part of that is the Ontario Association of Chesa Police and the Canadian Association of Chesa Police are allowing this misogyny and malfeasance in the organizations and they're not doing anything to protect the females or right right you know, and and they're just allowing it so it's indicative of um People who grow up in a home of domestic violence expecting them to understand a respectful um, relationship when they get older it's not going to happen so that's happen. what we have in policing. Right.
2: Kelly what do you see this also this this culture that I think you know the way that Christina described it is very similar to to the way that you have talked about it and
3: experienced it do you see this affecting public complaints as well inevitably? Oh, absolutely. And to piggyback on what Christine said about, you know, the, the victims being put down and ostracized and gaslighted. I mean, when you look at the case with the Waterloo class action, there was a $167 million class action launched against the service. And three weeks later, the OACP promoted the chief of Waterloo to be the president of the OACP. And, you know, the, for any woman Doesn't looking sound at that like they're, they're very worried about the class action. No, I mean, right. they're saying if, if you've if you've been alleged to have discriminated against these women, committed sy- systematic sexual harassment against your female officers. How could you be promoting the yes. man responsible for that? And not only that, I mean, the lawsuit was rejected and really only because the courts were saying that the women should have to proceed through arbitration. Right. But then right. after the lawsuit failed. Now, Chief Larkin is now the president of the Canadian Association Chiefs of Police. So we're sending a message to the public that you don't matter. You know, here's what matters to us and you don't.
2: Now, let, let me talk a bit about, because I know the people who are listening are going to be interested, especially in this the way that both of you have had to manage your experience with the legal system. And Christine, you've been almost entirely self-represented through your human rights complaint, which is still ongoing. And Kelly, you've self-represented at the human rights tribunal, the Ontario Superior Court, and in fact, the Ontario Court of Appeal. Kelly, can I ask you, first of all, what was the worst part of self-representing? And if you could have had a really dedicated lawyer helping you what would you have most wanted that person to do to assist you
3: well to answer the first part of that i mean as i started this process i was not expecting it to be a study into gender equity but what i found i mean it was funny when i looked back at the statistics i realized that of the five appearances i've made in front of an ontario court only two of those were in front of female justices. Mm -hmm. And in only those two times, did I feel heard? Did I feel respected? Did I feel treated with dignity? I mean, to me, that's been the biggest eye-opener is that when I have presented professionally and articulately in front of male justices, I'm not heard, you know? So that has opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, I'm fighting a system already that, you know, the deck is stacked against me, but now the venue in which I've chosen to fight this battle is also stacked against me simply because I'm a self-represented female litigant. I mean, so automatically I'm looked at as if I don't know what I'm talking about. And second of all, I'm looked at slightly inferior to the fact that I'm, I'm also female, which has really opened my eyes because I was not expecting that to right, happen. Right, Christine, what do you think? I know you're
2: still in the middle of this. It's probably hard to think of what is the worst part and what you would most want help with, but can you have a go at that?
0: I agree with what Kelly is saying. And um, one of the things that I found is that there is um, an alliance with, in my case, uh, the city of Windsor and the Windsor Police Service has counsel representing them. And what I find is that in this human rights process and in other uh, processes that I've been involved with, the um, OCPC, uh, I find that the lawyers, tend to uh, side with lawyers. Um, I can write a letter to the tribunal and I can say, you know, could you please advise me on this with respect to the next, upcoming hearings? And I have get no response. Counsel for the police will put a letter in and within days, they get, you know, a, response. get a response. Right. So you're shunned. You are shunned. And um, it's just about persevering. The most uh, thing I could get help with, I guess, is managing the exact court processes and protocols, right. although I'm right. familiar with it. In the policing world, and I know Kelly has done some of this too, where you reach out to all these other agencies that are mandated to assist and mandated to provide oversight and police, but they're all getting paid from the same purse. They all belong to the same group agencies, whether that's the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police or whatever. They're all paid by the same government agencies and nobody wants to step on anybody's toes hmm. and victims are gaslighted because they want to stop people from coming forward. Right. And that happens with every agency because there's relationship building that goes on between the agencies. And I'm talking about OIPRD, SIU, OCPC, and those people want to preserve their position within those right. organizations, right. you know, right. So that's the sad reality that you're up against. It's not just the systems. It's the agencies that are there that aren't doing their jobs.
2: Right. As whistleblowers, which is what you both are, calling out this internal culture, you are basically an embarrassment to the public image of the police. And as a result, you have both experienced significant pushback from the police. And I know that's an understatement. (laughs) Both of you are now well beyond seeking a remedy just for yourselves and you're now working on and calling for systemic change in how police handle internal complaints and discipline so you know you've both gone through this journey that I know you didn't expect that you would be on when you started and I want to ask you each in closing and Kelly I'm going to ask you first what makes you keep going and when Will you feel you've done enough?
3: Well, in my case, I mean, I advocated at Queen's Park for protections for police whistleblowers. And since then, they have enacted a law that is allegedly going to protect someone like me that speaks up in the future. I guess for me, it will be enough for me when I see that an individual in my position does what I did and speaks up because what they see is something they believe is wrong and is actually protected. Protected by,
2: this law. by that law, right? And we have yet to see that, but that'll that'll be that'll be your your end goal, yeah. Absolutely. And what about the times before this, though, Kelly, when it felt well, like it was hopeless? How did you keep going?
3: Yeah, I think because in my case, Julie, I always my focus has always been on policy change and law change. It's it's always been right. about the greater good, and I still believe today that cops are not above the law and there should not be a way for decisions to be made behind closed doors when you're talking about applying the law to police officers. So I think for me it's just been knowing that what I have always wanted is in the public interest that you know, my goal has always been to protect all citizens of Ontario and Canada, I mean, yeah. anyone that is policed should have the ability to question decisions made by police and those decisions should uphold. Um, so I think it's just been my my conviction and, and my belief in myself that what I did in the beginning was right and what I'm still doing now is right.
2: Christine, what would you say?
0: Well, um, I agree wholeheartedly with what Kelly is saying. And uh, it's just, It's not in my nature to back down. I have Mm -hmm. 34 years of police experience now, and I've witnessed the mistreatment of females uh, ongoing for decades and what it did to the women before me and what it's doing to the women who are there now. What keeps me going is realizing that nobody else has taken this initiative. Right. And had I not taken this initiative, there wouldn't be the few changes that there have right. been within right. service in Windsor and other services in, in the province. Um, sadly, that's not enough. But, you know, it, this isn't a selfish endeavor for sure. I mean, uh, it's just not in my nature to sit back and do nothing. I've watched that happen for three decades and it's got the women nowhere. So it's time for change. And if you don't speak out, I wasn't gonna walk away from my experience there and had regret about not speaking out to affect some change. So okay. that's where I'm at with this. How long will I be? Um, I don't know. Let's see but what you're in
2: there for the long haul. That's right. I know, I know Christine. This, this was a fabulous conversation, ladies. Thank you so much. I, I, I think that nobody who listens to this could fail to be impressed by your commitment to, as Kelly put it, serving the public interest. And I thank you very much indeed for doing this today.
0: Thank you, Julie. Thanks, Julie.
1: So one of the first things that the three of you discussed, Kelly specifically talked about how discretion in these cases when you know somebody has made a claim or an accusation in a police organization the discretion comes down to one person in this case the chief usually I guess and there's no ability to question that decision that person Mm. makes the decision on their own there's no transparency and the the claimant really has no rights they they have no way of finding out you know, what has happened or why, or what recourse might exist to them, um, which it looks like there really isn't much
2: of a recourse within the organization. Absolutely. I mean, and these are, these are classic tendencies that Ke- Kelly is putting her finger on here. Yeah. You know, even if there's been some kind of independent investigation or a third-party investigator, it's still the decision maker is is classically still within the organization, which means that they're not really impartial and neutral. And we see exactly the same thing happening inside churches, universities, where, you know, no matter how many bells and whistles there might be of, you know, getting in independent experts, etc. It still comes down to the ultimate power of whoever is the head of that organization internally. And the other thing that is just extraordinary, I think, and, and, and which, you know, these women talk about is that there's no clear path to finding out what the outcome was you know there are various legal arguments that are made about whether the occupational health and safety act gives people the right to know the outcome but we know that in practice often people do not get told the outcome of their complaint which is extremely disturbing and you know quite honestly this is a kind of an institutional playbook unfortunately i hate i hate to say this but so much of this is so familiar to me Um, from speaking up about abuse in the church and the processes that I saw there and speaking up about mishandling of sexual misconduct complaints in the university as well, Mm -hmm. you know exactly the same problems, you know are exhibited in those places too, and the other thing that, of course, for me was so striking was the descriptions that they both gave of the pressure on them to shut up. You know, it, it takes an enormous amount of dogged resilience mm-hmm. to keep going in these cases, where you see that something has happened that is wrong and you can see that because of the institutional system, it's going to happen again. It's not just going to be a one-off, but it's part, as we've just said, of, of the structure of the complaint system and, and how things get handled. And, you know, both Kelly and Christine have been at this for a very long time, especially Christine. And, you know, I've kind of been at what I've been at with the University of Windsor for a pretty long time now too. Um, and I think there's a real danger that, you know, we get, we get to be seen as obnoxious, you know, because we have to be so dogged about this. Um, it, but if you don't see the wrong that you initially responded to corrected, which is the case for Kelly and for Christine, and you believe it's going to go on affecting other people, especially women in the future, then you can't give up. Well, even and if it does mean you're obnoxious.
1: Exactly, and I think, you know, those are kind of your two choices given the institutional responses to, to issues like these and people like you and Kelly and Christine, bringing up these problems and issues and abuses given that the response is so heavy and so wall after wall
2: after wall and yeah it's so difficult and given retribution i mean the waterloo police went after kelly for her post-employment benefits yeah and that was you know that was pure spite yeah just to try to to wear her down
1: and given all of that, these are kind of your only two options. Either you have to be, as you say, obnoxious and mm-hmm. just completely stubborn and pushing and pushing and pushing, or you give up. Like there's yeah. there's no way to do this, I guess, nicely, right? Like there's no <laughs> way there's no way to be a good little girl and make everybody happy and and push forward with
2: with these. That's right. I mean, I'd love to know if somebody has an answer for how to be, you know a good girl that everybody likes and do it, then I'd love to know what it is. And and, you know, it's interesting, of course, again, because this is so much as well, in some ways, a reflection of what we hear for people trying to represent themselves. And of course, both these women did that also.
1: Yeah, and it was so interesting to hear. I mean, this is obviously very different settings than a lot of the other self reps that that we talk to on a daily basis. And yet the experiences are so similar, unsurprisingly, really. Um, I mean, Kelly talked about that feeling that the deck was stacked against her and Christine talked about something that we've heard a lot from self-reps, this real sense that the lawyers are kind of, kind of aligning with each other, that they kind of stick together. Um, and she's just kind of an outsider. And as she said, she had trouble getting responses Mm -hmm, when she would send mm -hmm. emails or documents or whatever. Um, And, you know, as I said, we see this, we hear this over and over again from self-represented litigants. And I think, as you had said, as we were discussing this, that that's not always deliberate on the part of lawyers. And I don't think it is most Mm -hmm. of the time. It's just that they're part of an Mm in-group. And when you're in an in-group, you forget what it's like to be in the out-group. Exactly. It's just way too easy to kind of get along with each other and forget how difficult Do what's it
2: comfortable. Yeah, yeah, do what's
1: comfortable, yeah.
2: Well, you know, I have to say that I was already impressed by these women from what I knew of them, but uh, even more so having sat and had this conversation with them, their goal is change. Um, mm-hmm. Neither of them are willing to give up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they make an important point to me in conversation, which is that if it's this difficult to get complaints to be looked at transparently inside the police, Yeah. how much harder and worse is it going to be for members of the public who wish to bring a complaint yep. against the police? You know, they are fighting each of them specifically for issues that particularly relate to, to gender and gender discrimination here, but their calls for accountability relevant and important for a much broader public accountability mm-hmm. in the police and in other institutions also.
4: Welcome back to In Other News. My name is Katie Paff, and I will be your news correspondent on this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. I'm happy to recap the following news stories from the past few weeks. For our first news story, CBC featured Shannon Salter, chair of British Columbia's online Civil Resolution Tribunal, who shared that technology is only one part of the solution for ensuring access to justice during COVID-19. Shannon shares that in order for the justice system to become human-centered, other changes must be made. Examples she outlines include writing everything in a grade six reading level and asking if people need special accommodation for mental health issues or physical disabilities. A human-centered design approach would create unique solutions for each area of law to ensure the justice system meets the needs of those who access it. Not only has Shannon been declared an Access to Justice All-Star by the NSRLP, we also had the pleasure of interviewing Shannon in a previous episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower in April of last year. The episode will be linked in the description for you to take a listen if you haven't already. For a second news story, UNICEF has published the report on the role of COVID-19's impact on children's access to justice. As we all know, the pandemic has exasperated all areas of life, child protection services, and the justice system included. Children are more vulnerable than ever, and a human-centered approach for children involved in the justice system include the provision of legal aid and representation, and taking into account a child's age-specific needs. Beyond that. UNICEF suggests establishing restorative justice and diversion programs, promoting alternatives to detention, providing rehabilitation and post-release support. Immediate and long-term measures must be put in place to ensure the safety and well-being of children. Increased access to justice can be promoted through collaboration with National Child Protection Systems. And UNICEF even suggests that an immediate moratorium should be issued on admitting children to detention facilities. And there should be a reframement from arresting and detaining children for minor offenses. And any child who is currently detained should safely return to their families if they can, and if they cannot, an alternative should be provided. The system should and must reflect the individuals whom it serves. Children are no exception. To wrap up with one final update, you may remember last week that the NSRLP is looking for current or past self-represented litigants across Canada for a public input project. The Social Security Tribunal of Canada is an independent administrative tribunal that makes judicial decisions on appeals about employment insurance benefits, old age security payments, and retirement pensions, otherwise known as the Canada Pension Plan. They're in the process of developing plain language materials, and self-reps can provide input on whether or not this initiative is effective, and how easy or difficult it is to understand the SST forms, letters, and other tribunal documents. In order to have representative results, the NSRLP is in need of self-reps who identify as Black, Indigenous, or a person of colour, are Francophone, or have gone before any tribunal. Participants will be eligible to receive a gift card for their time. If interested, check out the NSRLP website for some more info and email representingyourself at gmail.com. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.